Hear, O daughter, and see, turn your ear, for the king shall desire your beauty. Recently, I read an article by a TV doctor who made the point that most people, in spite of what they do, want to be healthy. And I think he's right. Many people have health issues or bad or unhealthy habits, but they really don't like being unhealthy. And people of faith in Jesus Christ want to be holy. Like the unhealthy, they may also have bad habits of sin that separate them from themselves, from God and other people, but they don't like that. There is a sense in us that draws us away from that division uh, that is caused by sin. The most important step to holiness, to spiritual health, is to have an encounter with God. And that can be done as we have already uh, meditated upon this morning, most effectively in silence. Yet, we fear that encounter with God. We fear that silence. We're afraid of what God might say to us. We're afraid of what God might ask us. And so it's easier just to try to bring noise into our lives so we don't have to hear. But those fears and other fears that come into our minds and hearts with regard to a relationship with God are all lies. They come from the father of lies. They are whispers of the evil one. God loves us. And the ultimate evidence for his love for us is what he did to save us. He could have done anything, but instead he did that. He went to Calvary. He went to the cross and personally died for each one of us. That's how much he loves us. And so it must hurt him uh, very deeply when we don't want to come near him, when we're afraid to come near him because of these thoughts that he's whatever he's going to do is really going to make us hurt. Hear, O daughter, and see, turn your ear, for the king shall desire your beauty. These are words that he speaks to you. He desires your beauty. A beauty not defined by the way that flesh is attached to bone, but by the way his grace is attached to our souls. One of the best and easiest ways to learn anything, but even holiness, is by example. And I would like to propose to you three women who have demonstrated by their lives that they have understood that they were daughters of the king, a king who desired their beauty, learning this from silence, silence before him, and allowing that silence to penetrate their hearts and allow those hearts to be full of love and service to his kingdom.
The first is a contemplative. We spoke of contemplatives in the last conference. And this was one of the very first contemplatives uh, in the formal sense of being religious. And this was St. Scholastica. We celebrated the feast of St. Scholastica just this past Saturday, the 10th. St. Scholastica was the twin of St. Benedict, who famously founded the Benedictine order in the 6th century. They were born into wealth in Norcia, Italy in 480. As an adolescent, Benedict was sent to Rome by his father to receive a formal education. Among the subjects that he was directed to take was called rhetoric, and rhetoric is the art of public speaking. The emphasis in his education on rhetoric was not on the truth of the words that were to be spoken, but rather the rhythm, the eloquence, and the technique that the speaker should have in order to convince his hearers. Sometimes today we wonder why when we send our children off to college as Christians, they come back doubters or even declaring themselves no longer believers. It's because of that kind of rhetoric. They may have teachers and professors who are very engaging, very attractive, very persuasive in their words, in their rhetoric, but not on the content of what they are speaking. And so I think it's important for parents and grandparents to forewarn their children about what can happen. Don't believe everybody who sounds good. Don't believe people who just uh, make you feel good. But look at what they are saying. Examine what they are saying and see if that coincides with everything that you have received up to this point in your life. St. Benedict watched in horror as his friends, like himself born into uh, with the gift of wealth and given an education, wasted their youth in pursuit of pleasure and vice instead of the truth. And so Benedict left Rome. He gave up his inheritance for the pursuit of God alone, and he went into silence. He went off to Subiaco, a, a deserted place, and began to live in a, as a hermit and ultimately was uh, joined by other men who likewise were seeking uh, the Lord. After these men had joined him, uh, he realized that they needed some sort of organization, and so he wrote his famous rule to regulate their lives and to direct them to God. Now, Benedict's sister, again, Scholastica, joined him and started a community of women who were following the same rule. And although their monasteries were not far from each other, they saw each other only once a year uh, when they would meet at a place in between the two monasteries. And there they would spend the day in prayer, she and Benedict, in conversation, conversation about the things of God. 
St. Gregory the Great in the Divine Office uh, tells us about their last encounter. He says, Their spiritual conversation went on and the hour grew late. The holy nun said to her brother, Please do not leave me tonight. Let us go on until morning talking about the delights of the spiritual life. Sister, he replied, what are you saying? I simply cannot stay outside my cell. Monks were required to be back to their monasteries by nightfall. When she heard her brother refuse her request, the holy woman joined her hands at the table, laid her head on them, and began to pray. She raised her head from the table, and there were such brilliant flashes of lightning, such great peals of thunder, and such heavy downpour of rain that neither Benedict nor his brothers could stir across the threshold of the place where they had been seated. Sadly, he began to complain, May God forgive you, sister. What have you done? Well, she answered, I asked you and you would not listen. So I asked my God and he did listen. So go off now if you can and leave me for your monastery. Well, reluctant as he was to stay of his own will, he remained against his will. And so it came about that they stayed awake the whole night engrossed in their conversation about the spiritual life. St. Gregory says, It is not surprising that she was more effective than he, since, as St. John says, God is love. It was absolutely right that she could do more because she loved more. Who says women in the church don't have power? Scholastica did have power, not because not the way the world defines power, but she drew her strength and faith from surrender. Surrender of all that she had in the world and from the world, all her possessions, and most of all the surrender of her heart to Jesus Christ. And because of that surrender, he heard her prayer and answered it immediately. It was in the silence of her cloister that she heard and was formed and directed by that word of God. While you are not in the cloister, you can still invite Jesus into your heart to form, to correct it, and to direct it. As your circumstances permit, enter into silence with the Lord. Turn off the radio in your car when you're driving someplace. You can talk to God a lot in the car if you just make it possible. And turn off the phone as well. That annoying little thing that we carry around with us all the time that we just can't wait till it makes a noise and we can check it. Uh, We become like Pavlov's dogs. Turn off these things or uh, as it was a practice years ago, I, I remember when when I was a boy, my father oftentimes would stop by and make a visit. Just stop by the parish church, go in for uh, a minute, one minute, two minutes, and say a prayer and, and leave. Uh, we can do that. We can just stop anywhere 
doesn't make a, a, any difference where, uh, where we are, but just to lift our minds and hearts up to God. I mentioned that I'm the chaplain at the Carmelite nuns, and adjoining our property is a field that's owned by a farmer, and he rents it to another farmer who farms it. And the, the man who farms the property, of course, he gets on his tractor and he plants and he fertilizes. And every time he does his last row, which is right uh, up by the monastery, he turns off the tractor, gets off, and goes in and makes a visit. He just says a prayer for a minute or two to the Lord and then goes back and goes back to work. And those are the kinds of things that we need to do to let God touch our hearts. He can do so much in those little tiny encounters. The second example I would like to propose was a woman who was not a religious. She was a laywoman. She was married. She was divorced. She received a declaration of nullity, married again. She started an apostolate in the church that draws its members both from the laity and from the clergy. And it draws them to a deeper union with God that manifests itself in service to the poor. This woman has been proposed for canonization, and she is now at that stage called Servant of God. How many of you have heard of Catherine de Hoek Doherty? Oh, we've got a few of them out there. Okay. Catherine Doherty is a, was a very, very interesting woman. She was born as a, into Russian nobility in Novgorod, Russia, on the Feast of the Assumption in 1896, August 15th. A few days later, she was baptized into the Russian Orthodox Church. As a child, her father's business uh, took, her to, took her and the family to Egypt, where she was enrolled in the convent school of the Sisters of Our Lady of Zion, which is an interesting community. It was founded by a Jewish convert, Alphonse Ratisbon, uh, who had been converted instantly on walking into the church and passing by a statue of the Blessed Mother. He hated Catholics. His brother had become a Catholic, and that made him hate Catholics even more. But somebody persuaded him to carry a miraculous medal on him and then persuaded him to go in that church and... Like that, he was converted. So, with all these people that you may uh, uh, be praying for um, and be worried about and asking God to convert and heal, ask them to carry a miraculous medal. And if they won't do that, go hide it in their room or their house or something like that. And uh, place them under the care of the Blessed Mother. And... um, entrust them to her and stand back and see what happens. But in any case, uh, the sisters of, she encountered the sisters uh, of Zion in Egypt, uh, her first encounter with the Catholic Church. In 1912, at the age of 15, 
she entered into an arranged marriage with her first cousin, uh, Boris de Hake. The following years were consumed with World War I, uh, where she worked as a nurse on the front lines and was decorated for bravery. At the end of that war in 1917, the communist uh, revolution broke out in Russia, and as nobility, she and her husband were marked for death. And so they fled and crossed uh, the border into Finland. In 1919, Boris and Catherine arrived in England, and in that same year, she joined the Catholic Church, 1919. In 1921, they moved to Toronto, Canada, where their son George was born. In 1924, she moved to New York City and survived by doing menial jobs and giving lectures uh, on life in Russia. By 1934, she and Boris were separated, and she turned her energies to founding what she called friendship houses, Having seen how the communists had rallied the poor and disaffected people into revolution in Russia, Catherine was resolved to form the same kinds of suffering people in the love of Christ by offering them kindness, assistance, and help in finding jobs. Long before it was fashionable, she worked with those of all races, opening up her friendship houses in places such as Harlem, New York's black ghetto. She had received a declaration of nullity from her marriage to Boris, and in 1943 she married uh, a then-famous newspaper reporter by the name of Eddie Doherty. Uh, he was a Catholic, and he, uh, they met when he did a story on the work that she was doing at her friendship houses. He entered into that work after their marriage, and in 1947 they moved to Combermere, uh, Canada and opened what was called Madonna House, an apostolate with a more spiritual focus. By 1959, she and Eddie had decided to make uh, mutual vows of celibacy. And ten years later, in 1969, uh, Eddie was ordained as a Catholic priest. Uh, this was a rare but not unheard of privilege granted sometimes uh, in special circumstances by the church. In 1975, Father Eddie died, and 10 years later, at age 89, uh, Catherine died and was buried in Combermere. In the year 2000, her cause for canonization was opened, and as I mentioned, she now bears the title Servant of God. Catherine Doherty's spirituality was centered on what she called the little mandate. And the little mandate was something she believed she had received from Jesus uh, over the course of her apostolic life. And she summarized that mandate in these words. Arise, go, sell all your possessions. Give them directly, personally, to the poor. Take up my cross, their cross, and follow me going to the poor, being poor, being one with them, one with me. Little, always be little, be simple, poor, and childlike. Preach the gospel with your life, without compromise. 
Listen to the Spirit. He will lead you. Do little things exceedingly well for love of me. Love, love, love. Never count the cost. Go into the marketplace and stay with me. Pray fast. Pray always fast. Be hidden. Be a light to your neighbor's feet. Go without fears into the depths of men's hearts. I shall be with you. Pray always, and I will be your rest. This was her guiding light, and it defined everything in her life, especially the crosses, many as they were, that she faced over her 89 years. Catherine Doherty wrote a number of books and articles and gave many spiritual talks and conferences throughout her life. I'd like to share just a few of her thoughts as a way uh, to inspire you with her wisdom and maybe even encourage you to read some of her works. I'm taking the readings uh, that I'll give you today from an anthology of her works published in 2009, uh, it's simply called Catherine de Hake Doherty Essential Writings. And uh, it was put together by Father David McConey, uh, a Jesuit, uh, who will be giving one of our priests' retreats uh, this year. The first little reading is a bit lengthy, but it was actually um, a vision, a dreamlike vision that she had of the church. And we've seen the church go through difficult times, even in our own lifetime, certainly throughout her history, but uh, even in our own times. Yet uh, she continues to stand, continues to bring the Lord to us. She said, I was in a large room that resembled a cathedral. A large number of priests were assembled, priests from every century, from the earliest days of the church until the present. They were talking with each other. Some were arguing. Surprise. Some seemed about to come to blows. They were defending something. I remembered, it reminded me of some of the early councils in the church, which I had read where there were fierce arguments. I chuckled a bit at the absurdity of it, but then I started to cry. A sense of fear enveloped me. I seemed to be perched on top of a colonnade so that I could look down and witness all this. What I saw brought both a joy and a terrible sorrow to my heart. The crowd of priests suddenly parted, and through the aisle thus formed came a procession of light-filled people in two long columns. I realized that these were saints. Tremendous light poured from them, and this light sought to penetrate the hearts of the priests. It entered with those open hearts, but others it could not penetrate. In both columns were thousands of martyrs who had passed through fire and blood. A great hymn arose. It did not break the silence of God, but it was heavenly music overwhelmed by his silence which enveloped this music. I fell prostrate before the Lord whom I did not see, but who, of whose presence I was aware." The music was joyous. 
a song of people who are forgiven, who are reconciled with Christ, who realize they are sinners, although they had been created in the image and likeness of God. They had followed Christ and his word in their own humble and hidden way. In this procession were myriads of women who, down through the ages, had tended the sick, fed the poor, and taken from their own mouths bread to feed the poor. No doubt you have recognized many of these people. Saints live among us all the time. What a beautiful sight it was. The music was exquisite. I saw St. Thomas Aquinas step out from the line of saints and ask his superior about burning theological works. How did St. Thomas learn the mystery of God? He had written so profoundly about the mysteries of the faith. I heard as if it were the voice of Christ. The way to learn about the mysteries is to be very silent, very quiet, and wait. Then one day I shall come and reveal my mysteries to those who awaited my coming. My surroundings changed again. I was alone, and I looked around. All the lakes and rivers were polluted. The fields smelled of chemicals sprayed by an airplane. A fear entered my heart. I did not like the place. The silence captiv- captivated me, but the surroundings did not. I continued to think of what I had seen. Though there were tears in my face, the tempter came. It seemed that I was in his hands, and he presented me with very logical arguments. Now, Catherine, he said, it is time you yourself to forget all this silence of God nonsense and start living, really living, in the time you have left. Live comfortably and peacefully. Use your time for yourself. It was as if an evil wind was whipping all around me. Trees bent and broke in the force of it. I was shaken like a reed in that wind, and all the time the whisper of the tempter was in my ear. Why spend so many years in trying to bring the gospel of Christ to people who never listen? It all goes in one ear and out the other. Look at their actions. Those are proof of the uselessness of it all. The storm and wind were frightful. What he was saying was partly true, and I asked myself, how is it possible for the tempter to be truthful? I invoked the name of Mary and made the sign of the cross, and the wind subsided. Then, like a weary traveler, I went to sleep. When I awoke, the Lord was there. He said, you have been tempted because I need persons who are tempted, tempered like steel. And I found myself in a different terrain. From a vantage point in gentle mountains, I saw the church. It is not churches that arise out of the silence of God, but the church. There she stood, above the tree line, shining in the rays of a noonday sun. She was beautiful and simple, with her doors wide open, and into her streamed the rich and poor alike. As I beheld the church, awe took hold of me. These words from the Old Testament came to me. Take off your shoes. This place is holy. When I looked again, the the scene had changed. A disruption, a dismemberment, or tearing apart seemed to be taking place. The doors through which so many people had passed were being barred. 
I shook my head and tried to clear my eyes, for they were filling with tears. I couldn't believe that the people of God were causing all this turmoil, but they were. Each had his own idea of the church. Intellectuals who were supposed to be supporting the church were against her. Some were even denying the existence of God. At the same time, I realized that the church was beautiful, the shining bride of Christ. He had said that the gates of hell would not prevail against her. I knew that she was his beloved, and that he, God, was all tenderness, all love toward her. She passed in front of my eyes, the beloved of God. I relaxed among the pines. It was night, brighter than all the stars and moon was the church, shining in the darkness. I heard a voice say, Once more, Catherine, you are tasting my immense silence. I want you to see the mystery of the church. People may tear it apart, but I put it back together again. I have have faith in my power. Your faith may seem to hang by a very thin string, but I will strengthen that slender string because you have defended my church. She also speaks of loneliness. She says, What strange mystery is this, O Christ? The closer I approach your love, the lonelier I get. It seems as if, indeed, it is terrible to fall in the hands of the living God. I am alone, and the shadow of your face crushes my heart, bringing host a host of fears. Your weight is so immense. The world seems weightless before your weight, and loneliness complete seems to embrace me, severing all ties with men, yet not binding me to you. O tremendous lover, in this way to bring a soul into your courts, where can she wash herself in tears and be bedecked in a heavy mantle of loneliness beyond what, beyond that known on earth, so that she understands that loneliness is the fire of desire for you, the desired one? She speaks also of rejection, the rejection that she often felt. Rejection is an immense mystery, one of many that God places before us. Like all other mysteries, there is a door and there is a handle. In due time, we are invited to open that door and to enter into that mystery. Sometimes it takes many years before someone faces rejection. For some it may come in childhood. Sometimes it comes in very early years of adolescence. It can come in middle age or old age. Rejection is a mystery. One is incapable of either apprehending or comprehending it. It has to be entered into. The door must be opened. We must cross its threshold then we must allow ourselves to follow the intricate paths of its roads, which are sometimes wide and straight, sometimes twisted and complicated. The first realization will hit us hard. It is that we have entered the rejection of Christ. That is why it is a mystery, because Christ entered it. He lived it. He experienced it. Anything that God experienced is a great mystery for all mankind and for each one personally. 
It is Christ's grace that alone allows us to open that door, to cross the threshold, and to face rejection side by side with Christ. She mentions another emotion, event that we all face, and that is fear. We are afraid of many things, she says. We are afraid of so many things, and most of the time fear holds us tight. Fear is to be overcome, because once fear is overcome, hosts of its attendants disappear. Fear of people, fear of involvement, fear of ourselves, an endless sea of doubts about our security, about our identity, and so on. We face fear over and over again under new guises. But how do we overcome fear? First and foremost, by prayer. Fear is overcome by courage, too. Courage is not absence of fear, it is overcoming it. What are we afraid of? Pause for a moment and consider this question. And finally, she speaks about the danger of self-pity. Self-pity, she says, makes you blind and deaf. Self-pity is a deadly thing. It kills all understanding because once I wrap myself in the mantle of self-pity, I am blind and deaf as portrayed in the gospel. We are very rough on ourselves. The fact that we wrap ourselves up in self-pity doesn't mean that we don't wrap ourselves up in the mantle of eternal guilt, too. So between self-pity and guilt, we balance ourselves like a girl on the flying trapeze, and we don't get anywhere. We keep on flying, never being able to come down to the real hard brass tacks of God and his ways. To be gentle with oneself is to express what God does to me daily. It is to express his mercy, his truth. We are sinners, but don't forget the word saved before you call yourself a sinner. We are saved sinners. God saved us, brought us back to his Father, so be gentle facing yourself. We can very easily say to ourselves, now wait a minute, don't get into all this emotional un, uh, emotional and unemotional and spiritual business about guilt. No, don't do that. Be gentle with yourself, for God is gentle with you. If you know that you have committed a sin or something has happened that you are sorry for, if it is necessary, to go to confession and you will have peace. But please forget about it. If God has forgiven you, why should you remember? Gentleness to oneself will beget gentleness towards others. Always hang on to the gentleness of God. The third example I would like to give is another woman, uh, someone who had a story in many similar ways to Catherine Doherty's story, yet was a woman who lived the last half of her life uh, in Lincoln, Nebraska. Her name was Dr. Olga Baum. Did anyone here ever know Dr. Baum? We have a few of them here who knew her. Olga was born in the Czech region region of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Her family was wealthy. Her father owned a textile mill. She was an only child, and her life was rather idyllic until the Nazi invasion. In those horrible days that followed, she would, when she was about 16, 
all of the men in her family, her father, grandfather, and other relatives, were shot. Her mother was carried off to a concentration camp, and she found herself in a car with three SS officers. One of them offered her candy, and she knocked it out of his hand, and he slapped her. But the officer in the front said, she reminds me of my daughter. Don't touch her. And ultimately, they released her. She endured World War II living on the streets with others who were also suffering. She lived with and hid Jews. She had harrowing escapes and ultimately survived countless dangers. It was the kind of life you could have made a movie about. Her mother miraculously survived the concentration camp, and after the war, Olga married an American soldier. Like Catherine Doherty's experience, the marriage ultimately ended in divorce. She raised three children as a single mother in the United States, barely able to speak English. But through the trials of her life, she became a determined woman. Was she determined to see the Nazis defeated? Was she determined to avenge the pain of a broken marriage? Was she determined to beat the odds of a life that seemed to have the deck stacked against her? No. She became determined by the inspiration of God and her own experiences to become an instrument in his hands to heal the hurts and wounds people suffered, particularly in their minds and hearts. As a single mother, she earned a doctorate in psychology, and she spent her life quietly attending to the wounds of people that God placed in her path, and there were many. All three of these women faced challenging and potentially devastating crises. All of them chose God's way, even when it made no sense, even when it was excruciatingly painful, even when it seemed contrary to reason and common sense. People lose their faith, sometimes by choice, sometimes by a slow erosion, because they expect that the world will fulfill them and make them happy. And when it does not, or perhaps when they experience some kind of tragedy, they blame God. But blaming God doesn't help them or lessen their anguish. It only deepens their pain. I remember a woman in a parish I served who went to Mass every day. She was a widow with young children and was struggling with all the difficulties that come with those circumstances. One day, her pastor received a visit from the police. He was asked to go with them to notify the woman that her daughter had died in a car accident. And the pastor told me later that she simply said, I don't know what's going on, but I know God is in charge. If we look at our lives, we have a great deal to thank God for. Yet there is more than, even, even more of the highest earthly joy in store for those who love God. Union with him cannot be described in human words or concepts. St. Paul says, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has the heart of man conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. We instinctively fear and resist death because it's unnatural. It was never a part of God's plan, but came to be only because of man's rebellion. 
Yet we need not fear death, for it has been entirely conquered. St. Paul makes fun of death. He says, O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? If we keep our eye on the prize of eternal union with our Creator and Savior, we will begin to see the world as God sees it. The world surely has its joys, but not the kind that will last. Instead, let us be determined to seek his face and strive to allow his word to penetrate our hearts. And let us allow that word to be the silence that draws us to him. Then our desire to see his face will become our power and strength. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.